take your time too. Like, don't feel rushed on it because uh, it, it's a pretty big game right now. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's probably, I yeah. highly doubt the Jack or myself are going to play through it. So, um, this would probably be your best chance to talk at some point at I do about. plan on uh at some point I do plan on honoring Plumber's Wish and playing the first mission, but um I don't know when that's gonna be and I highly doubt I'll end up playing through it. I, so. I would say it's like pointless now that the episode's up and you guys haven't touched it. So <laughs> it's like if you oh, don't want to do watch it, it. Well, I wanted you guys to do it, so it could yeah, give you a so, taste, gotcha. you know. But hmm. Neon White demanded all my attention. <laughs> yeah. All my love. Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome to Couch Co-op, a video game podcast. This is your first time joining us. It's basically our own version of a book club, only we talk about video games. My name's Matt, I'm joined by Jack and Dave, and today we're going to talk about our some of our favorite narrative moments in video games, or narrative moments in gaming in general. Uh, but before we dive into that, we like to go around the room, discuss what we've currently been playing. I'm going to go first this week, so I'm still playing through It Takes Two, which actually should probably make this list, but I'm only still just reaching into the realms where... Uh, I believe it's four chapters in the book. Uh, I'm in the ice world, if that you know, helps clarify the area of the game I'm in. The game's incredible. I love like how just you never get locked into just being bored with a feature because it always is introducing something new. So, uh, But I'm definitely savoring this one. It's, it's going along at a very nice pace with the wife. So um, I have that. And then I'm also playing Neon White, which is honestly the genesis for the today's episode was playing through this game, which I think has one of the worst God awful plots I've ever experienced in a video game and some of the worst dialogue and made me realize how much I appreciate a great narrative moment in a game. I want to touch base on it takes two. Do you feel like this game has uh, added some depth to your relationship with your wife? Do you feel like it's helped you get any over relationship hurdles? You know, I'm, I'm hoping that this game, because I played this with Jack and our, our relationship is nowhere clear, close to being a man and wife. So, I mean, I want to, I want to hear from someone that I'm Batman and you're Robin, bro. I'm just saying, she, and <laughs> my wife would probably and, disagree with that statement. <laughs> so, but I wanted to ask from someone, you know, that is playing this game with a couple you know, has there been some points in this game that, you know, where it's like, okay, like, this is something I can relate to? Um, On a very small scale. I mean, look, it, it's not like they portray it in the game by any stretch, but there's definitely, like, little things that I take for granted having played games for 35 years or whatever the hell it is now, Um, that, like, something as simple as a double jump and then being able to also dash at the end of that and how just natural that like kind of mechanic is to me versus like from, you know, my wife, like when it's like, how come I can't get on this ledge? And it's like, Oh, it's really simple. Just, you know, do a double jump. It's like, well, what the hell is a double jump? It's like, <laughs> Oh, well, if you're at the peak of your jump and you hit jump again, you, you can double jump. It's like, well, what, why, why is that? Why don't you just jump? You know, it, it's things like that, that like it's, I guess is this, 
the hidden joy of it is kind of like experiencing that. I could just see how angry Lily must be that there's, you know, physical superiority over like what Van Dam can do, you know, not even Van Dam can double jump. <laughs> yeah, that's why it, the comprehension, it's like that, that's not a thing. Otherwise he would have done that. I've seen time cop. I've seen, you know, but, uh, no, it, I mean, in that regard, like it is pretty cool on the boss fights in particular, because, you know, we did go with with the classic genders where I'm playing as the guy and she's playing as the woman. And in that regard, there's actually many of the missions and, and boss fights, actually, where I believe that her role is much more difficult than mine. So particular in the boss fights. So um, as a result, it's been kind of neat to like having to like coach up and be like, listen, like all I can do here is like throw the shit on you're the one who has to target and hit it and do all that stuff so it, it's been kind of neat because when you do complete a level it, it you know it feels like you've accomplished something but i will i would be lying if i didn't admit that like one of the recurring jokes throughout the entire thing is just laughing at the thought of you two playing it and being so drift compatible throughout that you're just the the perfect couple in terms of video gaming and just pretty like, much yeah. Well, meanwhile, I'm sitting here bickering with my life partner of, you know, however, 15 years or whatever. And just like, how come you can't get on the top of the thing? Like, I clearly aimed this thing over here. <laughs> and I'm just picturing you two in harmonious, yeah, perfectly synchronized, being like, oh, yeah, leap on here. We'll jump up here. So. Uh, but yeah, no, like I said, well, going as back, long as we're on, you know, narrative. No, no, no. Before we get to that, I have to go back to trashing your game, Jack, which I needed to preface by saying that the only reason I'm playing this game with this god-awful narrative is because it is your selection for the game we all have to play this year. So um, we will discuss at great length the the gameplay and what have you, and I will digress. I will admit that it is rather phenomenal, but Gosh, the plot and storyline is so bad that it literally has inspired this episode. So there you go. Jack, what have you currently been on? We Well, the last pod was quality of life features. They put in a fast pace up. I've probably done it to a third of the dialogue in this game because I like you. Um, I have struggled with, uh, <laughs> with the narrative of Neon White, um, but I am hopelessly addicted to the gameplay, and therefore, for the last three and a half weeks, that is primarily what I have played. I get very excited when I go through the leaderboards and discover one of you has broken one of my records. It gives me a new goal to accomplish. Um, but I did just fire up. Patrick's Parabox, a puzzle game released last year that is very under the radar. And thus far, I think it is brilliant. I am very excited to play more of it. And uh, I'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Dave, I heard you were, uh, sounded like you had some mixed I'm feelings like, so on that I'm one. I want to touch base with that, you know, and that um, I've learned where to, to fast forward through all that dialogue with that's because. It's, you know, as intriguing as the story possibly could be, I think the script writing is really, you know, putting a cloak over it. So um, the gameplay has been fantastic. I've had great fun. I've had the last week off away from um, video game consoles. I went camping. So unfortunately, 
I've kind of slowed down on that, but I want to touch base with it pretty soon. I'm pretty excited to get through some of the deeper levels because I'm, this is what I'm enjoying about the game is that it's adding on newer and newer mechanics at a, a pace. I feel like that makes it easy for you to pick up on the new stuff, you know, like you kind of remember, oh, I can do this with the old stuff. So how can I chain this to get the desired results? You know, and, and frankly, I feel like the level design is pretty good. You know, there's some shortcuts that took me a while to find. And when when you find them, you're like, oh, yeah, that's dope. You know, and then you try to squeeze it out. So, um, but yeah, uh, before I really started playing that, I finished Final Fantasy 16. And, um, you know, I was super excited to play it because they're going back to like kind of more of a pure sword and, you know, magic kind of... Uh, you know, scenery behind it, whereas, you know, swords of some form or magic of some form has always been like a key cornerstone of Final Fantasy 16. I don't, I think it's been a while since it's taken place in the time of castles, you know, where people don't have flying cars or something like that. So, um, and then, you know, I found out that it's, it, it differs vastly from all the other ones because there's going to be a main character that is going to be voice acted. So, there's a lot less of the party system. It's almost non-existent. I mean, you do have a party for some things, but uh, for the most part, um, Clive, you know, is the, is the person that you see the most. So uh, I jumped into that, you know, pretty good. I think I've kind of pointed out some things as we talked about what we we're playing lately. So finishing it up was a, a nice thing. Um, kind of got a little furiating near the end when I thought I was done with some of the... <laughs> Some stuff, and all of a sudden it pops up like gremlins once you pour some water on them at midnight, you know. So, so, um, yeah. Um, overall, I kind of feel like I have a negative connotation towards it over a positive one, and uh, I kind of described it to you guys before the take it as a cake, where the the frosting is excellent, itself is not very appealing. So it kind of looks better on the outside and tastes better in small amounts, but the actual meat of it is uh, not as good. Jack? That's funny because the way you've spoken to me about this game, I actually almost picture the opposite where you've said the main core story and gameplay is really good. And I think of that as the cake. Then anytime you mention the side quests or, uh, you know, this or that, that's, that's the frosting and that's where you start to get all angry. And I got to say, uh, um, I'm, I'm not a huge cake eater, but uh, frosting's the best part. And if the frosting sucks, it doesn't matter how, how good that cake is. <laughs> well, uh, I feel like I, I feel like we have to define, like, I feel like those two things are subjective, right, Jack? Because I think, um, you know, it, and it's been shown over the few years we've done this podcast that you know, your idea of what's good in a video game and what really gets you enticed is a lot different from mine. So, um, you know, for example, uh, Witcher 3, the side quests to me are like almost the meat of the game. And then it's polar opposite for this one, you know, so, um, but still, I feel like, Jack? Well, about those side quests, because it's, it's interesting. I read the exact same thing in, in the few reviews that checked out kind of trying to determine if I wanted to play the game or not. And, and a lot of people said this, that the side quests were the weakest part of the game. 
I wanted to ask you now that you finished the game, what do you think the developers were intending with that? Is it, was it kind of to add layers onto, uh, you know, the narrative or the characters in the game or was it just kind of padding for the gameplay? Well, this, this kind of touches and, you know, I don't want to say I'm going to be strict with what I'm going to tell you about Final Fantasy 16, but I guess I was going to go with what I would consider the negative connotations over and then do the positive ones at the end, because I feel like that's, that's a good way to, you know, like present it. But so this happened to be one of the, the parts where I'd consider like that it was weaker in the side quest missions. And I felt like they're weak because uh, they, they, even though they show, they highlight some aspects to the story that you would miss otherwise in the main quest. Um, they are staggeringly um, pace breaking. Like, um, you know, I think they, they slow it down. You'll have this great moment and it's been very fun for like the last hour and a half, you know, and you've really enjoyed the spectacle that they put on. And then you get, you know, four to five of these side quests. And the thing is, um, these side quests can, some of these are just one shots and some of them end up becoming like a series of three to four quests that you open up as you move along the main storyline. So if you want to play them and experience them, it's something you have to address on a regular basis. Whereas Witcher 3, you can you can skip a lot of the quest lines. I mean, I think, or the side quest lines, because there's a few that really kind of, um, they guide you into, you know, like they kind of fold into the main story. So I think you have to play them, but there's a lot of them that you don't. And I, I don't think you'll have a, a better experience if you would play the side quests. On this one, you know, unfortunately, I feel like that they kind of are so integral for you to play because some of them will offer you items or insight into some characters, but you never know which one is the good one. So you're you're never really too sure about what you want to play versus what you want to kind of skip and to, you know, keep the pace going. So that, that was one of my weaknesses for this game is that the the side quests are just kind of like there to knock out the wind out of your sails and, you know and that's not exactly something i think that uh was a very big positive now here's the thing the side quest is part of the cake aspect of the formula for this game for me um you know like i got some others and i'll just kind of build upon that as we go along but yeah it's unfortunately um and that kind of ties in with the way the level designs work and i can touch base on that later on but um i don't know uh it's kind of good to hear that the rest of the community is uh echoing the same thing feels the same way that you know we've had enough good writing and video games that you know the side quests on this seem kind of sometimes haphazardly put together or just kind of thrown in just to throw in some filler content it's fascinating that even the thought of side quests because like you know i i played a lot of final fantasy when i was younger i fell off though after eight um, so I'm not as familiar with the later ones, but in all the previous editions, like side quests were never to me really a thing. Like there was optional stuff you could do, but they were more task oriented, not a traditional like side quest. You know, it was more just like, Hey, there's a character you can go find if you want to do some exploration or Hey, if you want to raise a chocobo for, you know, navigating the the terrain, you know, you can do that. But 
but I, I can never really think of like just a true dedicated side quest. So that's fascinating that that was such a integral part of this, this version of the game. Mm-hmm. And some of them are really good. Some, some really shine a lot of light onto some of the side characters that are very prominent with throughout the game, you know, and you, like you get to discover one person's daughter, you know, and she's only merely kind of talked about in the first half of the game, but becomes like a pretty big figure in the second half. And um, I don't want to say you don't, you don't, you, you can skip them, but I think skipping that one is not a good thing. Whereas there's a few others where you're like, okay, this could lead down a pretty entertaining road or, you know, might have some sort of insight. And it just kind of is like, hey, go kill five of these water scorpions and bring back the body parts. And then you get some like pretty menial, you know, building material, you know, nothing that really kind of would build onto your character in that sense as well. So, um, yeah, the side quests uh, have been, are pretty weak throughout this game, I would say overall. And maybe I'm just spoiled because, you know, I played Witcher 3 and I would say even CD or Cyberpunk 2077, has some pretty good side quests itself. So I think maybe some studios just kind of emphasize them more than others. That's probably my best guess. I was just going to say one thing I do want to ask you about, uh, Dave, was whenever I think of Final Fantasy, I always think of the music uh, behind it. Like, How well did you appreciate the soundtrack to this version of the game? Um, I enjoyed it very much, and that's that that's frankly one of those things that's on the good side of it where it becomes the icing um they hit some very nostalgic notes and even in like some of the sub menu save screen stuff sounds very much like some of the older stuff that i played in final fantasy 3 you know that immediately brought this like wave of like i recognize this and it's pretty comforting because, you know, it brings me back to an era where I had the time to really get involved in RPGs. You know, I did my homework and then the next, you know, five hours I could just be sitting in front of my TV on the Super Nintendo. But the the music is fantastic for the most part. I would say there's some times where some of the scores don't line up with what exactly is happening. And, um, and but that's pretty consistent. It's almost the same score for the same scenario so and i think there's only about four or five times where that happens so it's not something that you know i want to mention as a negative because so much of the other aspects of the soundtrack are dope and the fact is you get an access to a jukebox you know when you're at your uh you know player's uh base so you can go back and like set something that you wanted to hear on the background you know and kind of set the setting for yourself when you're you know, walking around exploring your home base. So um, I would say they did a good job on that, especially with the fact that I think they wanted to target older audiences because they changed up the formula so much that, you know, they had to give us something in the sense of like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's that that subtle nod, you know, in the back of your brain that's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is comforting, you know, as, you know, you're playing a game where you're playing the main character, He's got speaking lines and all the other games. The main character tends not to really have too much um, reflection on himself. And it's more like the party members kind of doing all the heavy work on developing a character for the main guy. So um, I think they did a pretty good job on it, though. Well, as long as we're on the uh, narrative podcasts, I will not be talking about Portal today, but I 
think it would be a huge missed opportunity to tell Dave that as far as his metaphor goes, the cake is a lie. Um, so does that, does that mean like the way I perceive cake is a lie or Gladys wouldn't like this cake either? Is it, I, I'm kind of reading in two different tones. I'm just throwing in a random internet meme <laughs> based upon a video game. All right. Fair enough. One of the, um, you know, one of the 50 most famous lines in video game. So, um, don't worry, Dave, know, I didn't get either. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh good i'm glad i'm not the only one but i do appreciate the meme definitely got to throw out gladys's name uh and that is a pretty dope reference because that game is fantastic um so some other negative things and i'd rather kind of like get through that first um it's not a complete roast of it i would say like i said you know like eating around the edge of this cake and maybe in the middle part would be really good. And you can just kind of toss away the rest if you want, but um, level design is a really big thing for me. When I play video games, I think it's got to be intriguing. I think the places that you're playing, you know, your characters interacting with has to be interesting. And unfortunately this game does a pretty mediocre job about it. Um, a lot of the levels seem very, even though they're large, even though the places look different, um, most of the time when you go exploring, you're not finding much. You know, you're, you're not finding some of the cool stuff you would in, like, uh, you know, Witcher 3 or Monster Hunter World or anything like that. So I felt like this was a huge weakness in the sense that when I first started playing the game, I was super excited to go walk around these different areas and see what they were, and you'd, you'd, like, defeat these low-level enemies, you know, and collect some body parts and stuff that will eventually be into equipment, but uh, the level designs after a while, even though all the textures are super gorgeous, the plants look super gorgeous, the mountains look super gorgeous, it, it's just not something you can really interact with, so after a period of time, it became something that I started ignoring, and it was mostly, like, find where I need to go and try and get there the most efficiently, and I... I think that really kind of hurts the game, especially when you got such a limited amount of space. It's not a complete open world like Elden Ring was or Witcher 3. You know, in Elden Ring, like, you'd see a location. You go, oh, I can get there. What's over there? You know, you just got to you gotta try to wade through <laughs> the wall of enemies that's facing you or the fucking level wall, you know? So um, that was something I think that really hurt this game quite a bit and I think was pretty unfortunate. but. The reality is, like, I haven't played a lot of the newer ones. I played the older ones, and the older ones are kind of similar. But I mean, the older ones you're expecting, you know, you walk around this area and just you you fall into a fight. You don't see the enemies here. You see the enemies, so you can avoid them just as easily. And um, you eventually get a chocobo, which helps you speak through the process because you can skip those fights. But I would say, a good like half of the game, you're like tied in to like fighting these things. If you get even close to them. And, you know, you walk over to a corner of the map that looked interesting and there's really not too much there. And then you find out you have to get there again later on in the game, even though you were there. You know, in Witcher 3, you find a corner or even Elden Ring. You know, I just don't want to, you know, mention Witcher 3, but it's kind of like a gold standard right now for RPGs. Um, <laughs> uh, you haven't played Baldur's Gate 3 yet? Not yet. <laughs> I will be on the 6th. Don't you, don't you worry about that one. 
but um it it you, you can get there in witcher 3 and you can see a boss and you're like you'll see a red skull and you'll find out your like best weapon that's you know you know repaired fully is only chipping away at it so it's either you jam circle until this thing dies within 90 minutes because that's how much damage you're doing to it or you come back later you know but you know where it's at here you got access you can get to a place where eventually you're going to fight a monster and and it's not there and then you leave and it's kind of a pain in the ass to get there but you wanted to do some exploring to give this game a shot and you end up having to go back there and you just kind of remember how boring it was to get there so um level design is definitely something that you know staggers this game quite a bit and most of the time it's a bottleneck that leads into a big round part and then you exit the same you know a bottleneck on the other side so it's kind of obvious about which direction you want to go through which is usually straight through the middle and there's some levels granted that path off branch off and are kind of web-like but those end up being the most annoying because then you definitely have to wait through these like tiny corridors to get to places and you're inevitably going to get into a fight that you want to skip so um yeah but i i you know, I really think the worst thing about this, and I'm going to get some crap from you guys about it, is the battle system uh, was really kind of dull and repetitive. Um, I would say even worse than Witcher 3, because Witcher 3, um, and in, in this game, you could, you could, up, you can shoot a path up into a certain style of fight in Witcher 3. You could use different weapons and they can have different effects i mean it's usually generally a sword but there's axes you can use i've seen gameplay of that here in witcher and here in final fantasy 16 it's just a sword you know and when you upgrade it the sword just kind of gets a little bit more powerful than it used to be and you know but your enemy scaled up too so it's not like you're doing this like big service unless you're walking around in extremely low levels where you're just kind of bowling everything so I felt like um, it had a weakness in that. And then also the, the power system is kind of repetitive, even though you can do all, all these different combinations. It's really only until the end of the game where you can really start to kind of see like, hey, if they'd have implemented this a lot sooner, like it probably would have kept that battle system fresh. So um, I will say I did play with, um, and this is like a really interesting thing, and I don't want to call it good or bad. It was, you have relics that you can uh, equip to yourself, and some of these relics are basically cheat codes, like one ring automatically dodges for you, which I skipped. But I did keep a ring on that uh, just kind of showed the timing of when an attack came and gave you like an extra window, in a sense. It's like hit, you know, R1 was the dodge button. And, you know, so it's say hit R1, it'd become a quick time event. And then you can use that and automatically do a counter dash. But that's pretty much the whole game is dodge, counter attack, dodge, counter attack until you got your moves. You expend them a few seconds later, they come back and you can expend them again. And graphically, it looks fantastic. Um, but just there's no real meat on that bone. And after a period of time, it just becomes pretty, you know, repetitive and boring so um so dave what would you uh consider your rating for this title oh snap i got the aggregator on here with me um 
I'd probably put this at like a six eight, six nine. Um, and J- uh, aggregator Jack, uh, what's kind of the average that you're seeing uh, for ratings for this title at the moment? Uh, eighty eight, I think, is around where you'll you'll see it on Open Critic. Um, yeah, very high score. Uh, obviously, did not hit with Dave. Um, so- Dave, I, I have one more question. Um, and that is that one of the things that I did see about this game, one of the things that really interested me is that I hear some of the boss fights in this game are, are just hands down spectacles and are amazing fights. Do you see any of the boss fights in this game being on your, uh, on our end of the year boss fight pod? Uh, no. Um, though I believe that is a highlight of the game. Um, I feel like these boss fights and you know when you're going to get into them are what get me excited because you don't know what they're going to throw at you. You don't know how big this is going to get. You don't know what kind of stuff's going to happen. Uh, a bit of this game is R-rated in the sense that, you know, this shows some pretty graphic stuff, what you do to your enemies. And, you know, that was always something that was like, okay, like this is something different for this kind of game. Um, you kind of expect it and got a War Ragnarok. You know, you kind of expect stuff like that in Elden Ring. And, um, you know, to see it pop up in a game like this, you know, was kind of a bit of a surprise. But the boss fights are, for the most part, extremely fun. Um, there's one that you have with a character called Kupka. And you fight him once, and then you fight, end up fighting him again. And it's the second fight where he turns into this thing that's like 10 times the size of a mountain. And your character is like, you know, probably a good 30, 40 feet tall, you know, and you're running around him, you know, dodging certain parts of him, jumping off, attacking other parts. So it becomes like one of those fights where you're really using up the whole screen and it's it's like scaled up to where you're fighting something ginormous. And then even the smaller ones themselves are always really entertaining. Um, they have some cutscenes that are freaking fantastic and the cool part about this game is that uh you just don't cast you know your espers or you know your sprites or what they've been called in various forms of this game um you get to play as it and i think that was a huge part is that um you know you're playing against another human who can channel these things and kind of summon them and there's a few scenes where you see like that potential happening where Odin is fighting, you know, Bahamut, you know, and Matt might recognize those two names, but you know, you're you're playing as Ifrit for the most part throughout it and it's a pretty cool fight. It's always fun. Um I would say the one thing holding it back is that Ifrit has like three attacks and then as you go through the game it gets special attacks. So and so much of this bases off quick time events, you know, where like the two the two monsters get into like you know some sort of uh, grapple and then if you're not jamming on the square button you know which is bringing me back to the wonderful 101 a lot quite a bit my right peck hurt from it you know after when I was trying to grind through the game um, you know really kind of like I think hurt it a little bit you know I think the first time you play it if if you play the demo you're playing pretty much you're eating all the icing. And then, you know, you get through to the cake on that. But um, that really kind of showed you the potential 
of the battle system or the you know how the spectacle of these fights are and they did a really good job on that and it was one of the things that kept me going was okay i know this character can summon this thing so i know i'm going to end up fighting it at some point and you know it's going to probably be a fun fight from what i've seen so yeah actually the pro for this game the cake metaphor i would say is dead on because that's kind of based on that separation between your score versus kind of the uh, uh, posted critical acclaim that it's received. um, That's my perception of it, at least that like, this seems like a title that like presentation wise, like it just looks gorgeous. And that like, you see a video of it online. Like I've seen a few demos of, of combat and things like that. And it makes you desperately want to play it because it looks really cool. But then after talking to you, who actually slogged through all the the requisite hours or whatever, it's a completely different experience, which leads me to believe that either A, the folks who are doing the reviews are doing a review, but they're only experiencing roughly the amount of time that you describe, like playing through the demo, in which case it sounds like that's an awesome experience. But then if you actually play through and complete the game, it's a completely different thing versus... I, I don't know about that. I don't think too many reviewers are just playing through a demo and like these are professionals. They're, they're playing the entire game. The other thing I'll say in Final Fantasy, you really think that they have that, that many hours to dedicate before they have to post a review? Like they have to yeah, get those get things posted copy. out within like seventy, you know, forty-eight hours of release. Like they don't always go. Oh, through usually and play the before whole game. the game, but they get advanced copies. I mean, that's that's just the way it is like you got two. these guys had probably had 10 days to play this game 50 hours 50 that's, hours uh, maybe. That's pretty but even then like I, said, I don't think I mean, that they're, they're playing the whole the game though man absolutely they're playing the whole game maybe they're missing out on some side quest stuff but they're playing the whole game i mean i'm sure there's you know there's 100 reviewers out there there's probably five or six who are cheating but no i mean they're talking about the whole game in depth um, the other thing I will say is that Dave had a lot of negative things to say about the combat. And I just have to point out that on story mode, the combat has been actually made simpler than the normal game mode. You're offered two, um, items that do like an automatic dodge. So one should note that this game that has basically been raved, the combat has been raved about. Dave's opinion of the combat might be a little shaky. Well, that's the a fair thing point. Is I don't think battle mode adds like uh, new. <laughs> I don't think going into battle mode makes the enemies have different move sets. It's not like the fight changes. All it all it does is like you take more damage and probably. No, your your equipment wrong? actually has changed from the beginning, where you get a um, item that makes you automatically dodge many attacks. Which well, that's I, optional, so you can take that off. Did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I took, like I said, there's one There's one thing I, you know, and if you're listening, there's one thing I played with was it, all it did was show, like, maybe a dodge. It would show a, a moment where you could dodge, and you could use that. It became a quick time event. But if you learn to read the combat you could hit that dodge before that even pops up and that started happening up quite a bit so 
you know, you take a game like Elden Ring, where like these enemies are kind of mixing up how they attack, you know, vertical versus horizontal, you know, maybe spinning around a lot, that kind of stuff. You don't have that kind of variety in this game. You know, most of the time, if you see that right elbow come up and his hand is, you know, horizontal with it, you're going to like know that he's about to attack. So um, you're right on that, Jack, that like if I played it where you can just like hit the square button as like one of the guys shown on the demo, I didn't play it that way. You know, I played it with that one handicap where it's like, okay, it's in story mode, so I'm not taking as much damage, which means I'm not fighting the same fight over and over again, relearning enemies' moves because, frankly, they're not exactly at, on a par with, you know, from software's battles. Is what all I did was kind of turn a dodge into a quick time event. And then if you hit square after that, he counterattacks and then you can go into a combo. And, you know, so I understand from that point of view, if you felt like I was playing with like, you know, this automatic dodge and all that kind of crap, you would, you know, say, oh, okay, plumber's view is skewed. But um, yeah, I played with one of those on and the other two slots were meant to either boost my health health or boost my damage and there's so many other options you could play and i think that's how they kind of tweaked the difficulty in this game the challenge level it isn't like you know play on ultra hard death march to you know just basic like you know breeze through the game as fast as you can um uh, they made it optional where you can kind of tear it up and that kind of stuff so i would say that was a positive in that sense where they kind of wanted to break the mold on it but the the battle on it after a while, like I go, okay, this is going to be a dodge point. It's not too hard. It's going to raise its arm. There's going to be a slight pause, you know, dodge. Maybe it'll spin two or three more times. And I've still been caught up by that, even with that ring on. You know, it's not like it gives you an R1 option, like every time an attack happens. But, you know, um, so I'm defending myself on that one, Jack. I feel like the. You know what it is? The battles look pretty. Your combos look gorgeous. Like, they did a really good job on the particle effects. You know, the way the power sets move, like, um, I don't want to spoil too much, but as you pick up new power sets, some of them are meant for you to do air combos. Some of them are meant for, like, a really strong defensive kind of play where you can block a lot of things and kind of counter attack with it, and it looks pretty and I see that's where the excitement is, but, you know, they also had a team member on there that was a big part of Devil May Cry, and that's what Devil May Cry is all about, is, like, keeping these combo links, and, you know, it's no surprise that you see combo meters as you're playing this game, you know, so um, I guess that's my rebuttal on that, was that I feel like after playing something like Elden Ring, you know, where you feel like you, you know, fought Radon version 1.2, you still felt pretty proud that you were able to defeat him based, even though, you know, like, even though you could read some of his, you know, moves, that meant your timing still wasn't always on point, so. And then I also kind of played some, like, Monster Hunter World on the side, you know, just kind of keep up. <laughs> to keep up. And the thing is, like, with Monster Hunter World, it's the battle in <laughs> itself is so much more better, you know, and the thing is that game is focused mostly all on battle. And I think that's probably one of the strongest points. So I feel like having played the games I have and the fact that, um, 
even though I didn't play it on battle mode and I equipped one ring, I don't think it would change too much. If I find out that battle mode includes like a whole new move sets for all your enemies and that really kind of changes things, I might be interested. But for the most part, it's a horizontal attack, a vertical attack, you know, or maybe some sort of charged move where you got to dodge out of the way because he's coming at you in a straight line. And it could be once, it could be three times, you know, so maybe you get caught up. And the thing is, I didn't want to go through this game, like having to refight an enemy over and over and over again to learn its movesets when it's not as interesting as something like Elden Ring, or there isn't that kind of payoff that you get with Elden Ring in defeating that enemy by memorizing it and fighting it so many times, so... Yeah, I've always felt Final Fantasy <laughs> games on that tendency one. to have a pre-repetitive uh, battle weird. system, so that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, but and also too, I, I think what you're describing uh, again, like the when it's such a gorgeous title like that that looks so good when you're seeing it in action, that I, I definitely think that that still has an impact because I do feel like there are a lot of games that get overhyped just on those types of factors as well, especially when all the bells and whistles and everything like that. And it's less about the actual core game and it's more just like the presentation is just too good to, to treat it like, you know, a possibly subpar title. So, um, so it's interesting. Like I said, I think you may be on something with the cake thing, you know, uh, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who do say it's a great title, so maybe it was just your personal experience with it. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing uh, your run through with that one, because it was a title that definitely piqued my interest uh, when you first brought it up. And uh, I don't know that I'll get around to playing it. I do kind of want to try that demo based on um, your recommendation. But, um, yeah, I don't I don't think I have it in me to slog through the whole entire adventure. I do, I do want to give it one more shout out and it's, you know, I'm okay with leaving it after this is that um, I would not be surprised if this game won best voice acting. Um, the, the main character like does such a good job. Um, the inflection in the character's voice through different scenarios of something, um, you know, really uh, horrible happening or you know like even his grunts of like powering up are fantastic you know and that kind of stuff and i feel like um because that they had switched this formula up and that the main character was a star that they had to have a really strong anchor at that point and um the voice actor ben star like knocked it out of the park whenever the main character is talking i tend to pay way more attention to the game than when some of the side characters talk so i felt like Kudos to Squaresoft on that and to Ben Starr for really breathing a lot of life into a bad script at sometimes. And, you know, I, I think that's a huge part of the, you know, icing. So I was going to say, you're going to have to tell me how that feels like because I've been stuck playing through Neon White, which just says I'm the most god awful voice <laughs> acting I've ever experienced in my 35 plus years of gaming. So. Um, you need to remind me what it must be like to experience true inflection and taking a terrible script and making it manageable. But instead of that, though, let's jump into our actual topic at hand, gentlemen. So you just gave us a nice preview of your impressions of Final Fantasy 
uh, 16, I believe it is. So I'm going to go back to a gaming narrative moment from one of my favorite titles of all time, Final Fantasy VI or three in the States. Um, so even though this is a title that has something that I was so hoping they would actually bring back in, in God of War, a different franchise, of course, but but one of the coolest narrative moments in Final Fantasy VI was the fact that literally the world gets destroyed halfway through the game and the entire map gets rerouted and you have to rediscover everything. You have to repopulate your party by finding where everybody ended up. It's one of the coolest things ever um, that I've experienced. And what's funny about it is it's not even my favorite narrative moment. And mind you, this is a game that not only has that crazy over the top sequence, you can also pile drive a, a ghost train, but the one that steals the show for me of all things is is an opera that you have a character that you're trying to capture. He's this, this sky pirate who flies around a Zeppelin and he's obsessed with this opera singer. That sky pirate, his name is Sid, right? Setzer. S- Sid's oh, in seven. Setzer? Well, Sid, Sid's a big character in Final Fantasy 16, so I'm definitely glad they kept that going. There, There but is a Sid in uh, Final <laughs> Fantasy 6. <laughs> Um, he's actually a character you can choose. You can either save him or kill him, depending on which fish you feed him. Uh, when you when the world first ends, actually, you you wash up on an abandoned island. He's sick, and you have to choose to nurse him back to health or or let him perish. But um, no, but Setzer is, is the sky pirate who flies around a zeppelin. You need the zeppelin in order to get to a certain area. And he's obsessed with this wedding singer. So you go to the opera house and one of the characters just so happens to look exactly like the wedding, the main wedding singer in the the whole production. But what was so amazing about this, it's a sprite based title and it's a cartridge game. So like the sound quality isn't great. The animations are pretty like ho-hum. But they managed to pull off just this whole production of of doing an opera sequence. And I just thought it was the coolest damn thing when I was a little kid, like just going through this whole dramatic moment in an era of video gaming where like at most you might get a cutscene, and you felt like that was like a super like cool, like little additional component, let alone like having a full well thought out, like, you know, dare I say classy moment. Like it, it was so cool to me that I actually went and got the classiest person I knew, my grandmother, and I forced her to sit through watching me play it. And of course, she immediately fell asleep uh, while doing so, so she didn't get to experience it. But for me, it was like the fact that you could take these sprites with the terrible sound effects from a cartridge-based game and still convey like this whole like imagination of an opera. I thought was just so amazing, and that that to me like just kind of embodies like a cool narrative moment in a video game that just like takes me out of just like observing and or playing and actually puts me into like feeling like this is a true experience that, I ch- that I'm going to cherish. So Jack, I know you play a lot of titles that aren't as story heavy, but do- have you ever experienced a moment like that in a game? When, um, you know, what really caught my ear, what you were saying is, is the idea of of basically a calamity that completely changes the entire map because that that's kind of what I was thinking about today when I was just 
considering how I wanted to approach this narrative subject. And that is like how cool it is when the narrative and the gameplay are actually like interspliced because I mean, there's some great just stories in video games, but there's, there's great stories in like all sorts of mediums. And I think what really makes video game narratives exciting is, is that they're doing things that can't be done in any of these other mediums. It's, it's an individual uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just a story that, that can't be told in any other, in any other setting. And so like when we first talked about this subject today, like instantly, like the last of us pops into my head, but one, we've already talked about the last of us to death. Um, and so I guess I started thinking about other video games and, and how, well, anyway, the, 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 the developer that popped in my head, and I apologize if I butchered the name, but um, Joseph Ferris. Uh, Matt, you're actually playing his game right now. It Takes Two. And um, It Takes Two is a game that I actually I, I don't like the narrative of, of It Takes Two. Um, but the previous games he did that before that I think have really cool ideas. Um, one being uh, a brothers a tale of two sons and basically how that works is that in brothers of two sons a tale of two sons you're controlling um two brothers at the same time and it's their story as they go on this really like beautiful fantasy journey feels like something out of like you know a, a, a fantasy novel and um heavy spoilers because uh, if you haven't played this game, if you plan on playing this game, I wouldn't listen to this. But they do this amazing thing towards the end of it where the one of the brothers that you're controlling actually dies. And all of a sudden, um, this person that you've, you know, embodied, you lose control of them because the controls that you're using to move that character they, they no longer function. He's, he's gone. So you're all of a sudden you're just using half the controls you've been using the entire game. And it really makes that narrative moment just hit that much more. He's, he's gone. You know, it's not just, it's not just in the story. It's actually in how you're playing the game. And they even build on that further where there's a section later on where you basically to complete the game to, to save your father, you have to swim across this body of water. And at first, like, you're perplexed by how you do this because your character doesn't swim. And so for a while, you kind of, like, wander around, like, trying to figure this out. And eventually, you'll come to the the idea that you have to hit the brother swim button, the brother who passed away. And now it works for the younger brother because throughout their journeys, through their through the older brother's guidance, you've learned how to swim. And um, I... I just think the way those two play off each other, I think is really just great game design. And uh, it just makes you care so much more about the story when you, when you experience it in that way. And a way out, uh, his second game also jumps out at me in that, that one you play and, and uh, me and Dave played this one together and the whole game you're working together as a team, you're becoming close with this guy who you, who you knew in prison and you become you know, your best friends, but you, you almost become brothers. And at the very end, they pull this narrative switcheroo where all of a sudden it turns out one of the brothers is a undercover uh, agent 
and he's basically been misleading you this entire time. And where this whole game up until this point has been about working together in tandem to solve puzzles, to go on these adventures, all of a sudden the narrative has you pitted against each other. And it just means so much more. Like in most games, when you reach the end of the, the game, you fight the last battle, you die and you just, you just start again. You play the ba- boss battle over and over until you win. But what they do is they force you into a situation and you realize it. Whereas if you lose, if you get, if I get killed by Dave, it's game over for me. I don't get it. I don't get to reach the end. It's just over. And yeah, Dave did kill did. me because, uh, because he's a FPS nerd. That's the reason why he hates Final Fantasy 16. There's no, there's no guns that he can shoot. I actually don't even know if that's true. I'm just talking shit. There isn't. <laughs> <laughs> And you're completely true. Had there been guns in that game, I might have given it like another point four and got it up to seven point two, but <laughs> it gets a six point eight. <laughs> I'm glad you can admit that. <laughs> uh, those are some great examples. Uh, I definitely I, I didn't play a, a way out, but I played uh, Tale of Two Brothers, and I thought that was a fantastic title, and and I am very much enjoying it. Takes two, um, you know, the the plot is is ho hum, but there's definitely, um, you know, the concept behind it. I'd say is very strong. I think it, it's a brilliant concept that you know is certainly you know kind of phoned in at times to to make the set pieces work, but. Um, Dave, uh, what you got for a narrative moment in the game? Man, I got a few, but Jack just put most of my list to shame. I got one card hidden up my sleeve that could possibly even come up to par with the fact that like he was able to integrate such cool narrative moments with like you know gameplay design and all that stuff. But uh, I, I will get the obligatory the last was two, the last moment Joel and Ellie get together <laughs> before Joel's death, and you know I'll just say that. Um, but uh, I God, this is also pretty weak. But I got where uh, Kratos gets a point out. Like narrative wise, I thought that was such a huge moment because up to this point, it's something he's been avoiding, and you know, um, he uh definitely has to like obligatory 2018. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Sorry. My apologies. Uh, And, you know, he has to, like, swallow a lot of demons and really, like, kind of become something that he didn't want to reawaken within himself. And just that moment where he's walking back to the house and he's got, you know, his ex-wife, his dead wife in his head just being like, oh, yeah, you can't leave these alone, can you? Like, you're always going to be this person. Pulls up the boards, you know, and mind you, it's the same board that, like, he, you know... Like ends up, but um, this moment you like he pulls them out, you know, and it's just like you got this music thumping, and you know the whole time is like ghost, you know, his his own head is talking to him, but it's in the form of his, you know, a ghost, you know, he's like really trying to push through this, and you know he finally like gets them on, and they burn his wrists, you know, but he, you know, Kratos is back, you know, and I ended up playing the rest of the game with those because you know I just thought it was such a cool moment. On a narrative scale, you know, especially with this game kind of being like, he's got a kid now, you know, he's not, you know, he doesn't want to fight, you know, he'd prefer to live in peace and just like fulfill his wife's wishes. So, um, yeah, 
I would say that was a huge one for me and one of the main reasons why I got so excited to play the second game because I was like, okay, what other narrative moments are going to be coming out of the series from here on out? And they're going to be able to do it in such a really like meaningful way and really kind of carries a lot of weight instead of him just like busting out the two weapons and then turning back into God mode. You know, there's a, there's a lot of history behind it, you know, and it's the entire series before that. It's really kind of one of those narrative moments where, you know, it's like, oh, he has to revert back to that in order to finish out this quest. So, well, in that vein, I, I'm going to take this one partially because I don't want you to beat me to it, Dave. But it, it's along the same themes. But um, Red Dead Redemption Two, um, uh, the American Venom sequence with the mountain, I just think is one of the coolest story beats. And this one's been on my head because you know they have the re-release of red dead redemption now for i believe they made a ps5 one there's a bunch of bs controversy about it not being a remaster and you know rockstar being rockstar but I, I digress um american venom like just the combination of the music cue with micah's gang like appearing over it and there's three guys in a row and it's just that sequence, like the classic gunslayer. And at this point, you're assumed the role, again, major spoiler, John Marston. And you're coming back to Avenge Arthur, which this has special significance for me because I had actually played through Red Dead Redemption, whereas I don't believe either of you gentlemen had. But um, playing as John Marston as the protagonist through Red Dead Redemption, like that was kind of the coolest thing. Like he was this badass, like gunslinger, very much modeled after the Clint Eastwood. And I know Arthur Morgan had his own charm, but there were certain elements of Arthur that was more rounded. Like he was actually like charismatic. He was funny. He was like, you actually kind of rooting for him. John Marston was more of a classic archetype. But in that moment, that's exactly what you want when you're going up a mountain and your only goal is just to kill every single person on it. And just that that moment with the music hits and he's got the three guys lined up and you have the dead eye meter locked in. You can just wipe them all out in one sequence. And then from there, it just cascades into essentially one of the last levels of the game before the epilogue. So, um yeah, I, I just love that whole um, sequence. And really, like I said, it, it's it. There were other moments in that game. I, I mean, particularly the ride towards the mansion, too, with the gang um, was another one that just blew me away. But the payoff in American Venom, I thought, was just top notch to boot. Um, that that moment, like I got to it and Jack at that point, felt like he he the game and really had no interest in continuing on with John Marston's story but that point might be what would make it worth it for Jack to play you know there's there's kind of a lot of filler stuff I love the part where he's building the house I'm sorry still one of my favorite moments I love the song on it but um yeah American Venom where it just like kicks off and the screen just goes red you know was like one of those things where like i think my heart rate probably went up like 100 beats you know and i was just so like jacked to play this because that song combined with the fact that john marston's on his ride to avenge arthur morgan you know is just like when those moments where it's just like hell yeah like way to finish out a game basically you know like an already spectacular game so really good narrative moment to pick up on that and that's funny. I thought about Final Fantasy 3 and I thought about Red Dead Redemption 2 and I was like, okay, I won't go after any of those and I'm glad you picked them up. So, 
Red Dead Redemption 2 had a, had a bunch of really cool moments. Uh, Matt, for me, the, the pinnacle moment was the one you mentioned, the ride to the uh, mansion. I just remember being in awe as, as that moment kind of builds. But also, um, as far as pure entertainment, and that's, you know, something that you don't get a lot of in, in games, um, the, the bar scene where they where you get hammered and it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying where they they have narrative that's intermingling with gameplay and, and your controls get all you know messed up during that because you're trying to control your your debut that was just like wonderfully executed just a, just a great scene and so funny um, moving on I, I wanted to talk about uh, Return of the Obra Dinn. Um, this is a game that um, I've talked about quite a few times on this podcast, so I won't go too much into the length. But what they do in this game with the narrative, where it's it's not anything overly complicated, but the the whole puzzle aspect of Return of the Obra Dinn, where you are a detective and you're tasked with logically rather than just having you know the video game parceling out information to you you're actually logically going through these crime scenes for lack of a better word and deciphering what exactly happened who who did what how it happens looking for actual clues as opposed to just hitting a button that you know makes everything light up um not to mention the fact that the the story is out of this world bizarre and you know what's what's so cool is you really only get maybe eight or nine frozen moments to tell the story and yet they still managed to paint this amazing picture of everything that happened on this journey and um i just i don't know i just i, I love everything about how that game is just so unique in in the story they tell and how it really makes you solve a puzzle rather than just watching a story unfold. Yeah. I'm very impressed by, um, I forget the creator's name. You'll have to remind me, Jack. Um, but, but uh, I always forget his name. He's the same guy who did papers, please. Another excellent, all but very uh offbeat narrative game yeah i was gonna say that's just been kind of my experience with everything these produce it's like that's so much thought goes into it um despite not really even needing it like um so yeah I, i'm excited to play obra den that one's still on my list of titles i desperately need to play uh based on your recommendation and uh it sounds like that one even more so like has a, a real narrative backing to it to boot like beyond just like what papers please executed uh, uh lucas pope is the guy's name thank you thank you dave what have you um, got for your next one there um i i went with inscription and you know i went with a a uh, part of the narrative <clears throat> that I found most interesting was like way deeper in the game after you've kind of, you know, cracked through the first level of it. You know, I don't still one of those games where I'd prefer not to spoil too much about it, but um, 
I, I think there's going to be huge spoiler coming up soon. So, in fact, this will probably be the huge spoiler. But um, the game shifts over, and you're going after one of the scribes, and it's PO3. And you defeat his, like, four minions, but you find out that, excuse me, <clears throat> you find out that those four minions defeating them is what he needed for him to enact his plan to release a virus upon the rest of the world and kind of basically start to take over everything. And um, so you defeat these, you know, you defeat these four ultra bosses, quote unquote, and, you know, he he like is like okay great you fell into my trap so you're just like oh what's gonna happen and then the three other scribes just come up you know and they're like oh you know it's time for po3 to go because he also gave us the back door he gave he bought us the time that we needed to like set ourselves free and then you see the three other scribes which are uh leshy grimora and magnificus come up and they uh pretty much just dismantle po3 right there on the spot defeating him and you know for me that was like i thought that was such a cool moment because throughout this game you know some of these people are your allies your enemy in different parts of the game those are kind of like changed around in different roles just depending on what's happening so that that was definitely one of those moments where i was like oh this is pretty cool dave i was actually um thought about this game a lot when i was coming up on my list because i think it is actually the best example of what I'm talking about. A game that uses narrative beats to actually produce gameplay. Um, ultimately, I decided that we did a two-hour podcast on it less than, well, yeah, less than a year ago. So I, I kind of said, you know, um, so I'm glad you brought it up because it gives me a, a chance to build upon what you were saying. And that is those those boss fights that he is gathering those information. Just like I said, it's it's all interwoven with the gameplay. Each one of those bosses is actually actively has a gimmick that, um, for example, one has um, a, um, a mechanic where you're forced to go into your computer and pull out a file to match into what he needs. And he's act actually, you know, behind the scenes, he's taking that. Another has your friends. He, he pulls up your friends list. Um, so I, I had you, I had your emblem, your rhino, Dave, attacking me in one of these, uh, in one of these boss fights. And it was for a game that constantly surprised me and kept me on my toes. My jaw was still dropped when all of a sudden your picture was my opponent. And I was very confused for a moment. I thought maybe you had actually like, somehow secretly managed to, to come attack me in the game, I, you know, for a split second. Um, but all, all the boss fights in that final phase, um, they are all built around. You have to defeat them using a narrative mechanic that ties into the overall story. And I just think, um, you know, that's arguably the, the weakest act of the game. And, and, that being said, for how how well thought out that whole concept it was, I, I don't know. Uh, I just thought it was awesome. Well, I, I think the biggest praise I would give Incept is Inscription is um, the fact that, like, when you're playing through Leshy's Cabins level, like, that could very easily be the game, and I would still consider that really solid. But then when they remove that veil and there's so much more going on behind the scenes, like... 
that was definitely that one of those like mind fuck for lack of a better descriptor, uh, which to me, again, you know, kind of is, is along those lines, what you're talking about too, Jack, like those moments that just kind of like give you pause because you can only really experience it while going through a video game. Like, you know, you can get moved by other mediums for sure, but like also when you're engaged in it and you think you have the whole game figured out and then it just turns you on your head like that, uh, it, it just blows you away. Um, one of the ones I'll bring up along those lines, um, I, I've talked about, you know, at pretty length here, so I'll, I'll be brief, but, um, Spec Ops the line, uh, has the white phosphorus, um, is the scene that it's most infamous for. Um, but that's a sequence where, because it, it takes the medium of the video game and you go through and essentially it's your, you're utilizing this mortar to launch this white phosphorus and you know enemies are in all these different locations and all you can see is the map and just like any other military video game like you see there's a collection of people on the radar you press the button shit explodes and and you know you get the little dopamine hit from knowing you wiped out a bunch of people all in one fell swoop but then the game forces you to go through and you realize that there's actually a bunch of civilians that were all in that area and that you were responsible for wiping them all out in the course of doing that just you know a random arcadey sequence that you don't think anything of just like wiping through killing all these enemies and you know you're actually thrust back into this very serious narrative of you know real world you know military combat over in a very hostile territory so that one uh, again like you know no russian from the call of duty franchise is probably the most famous sequence of really just blowing people away with just like a really dark disturbed sequence like that but this one to me i think was just more powerful because it used the medium of gaming really to like truly like you know you didn't think anything of what you were doing because it was a video game in that moment and you realize that that can be just as easy for these mass killings in this in this dark twisted world you occupy in that game so um Again, like I said, I experienced that you've seen countless times in any military drama, probably within the last 10 years, you know, the whole classic war is hell trope. But um, to actually do it coming in a video game saying where you're so used to just tapping the button, wiping things out without thinking twice about it, uh, really kind of blew me away. I'll switch gears. So, Dave, I hope I'm not stealing this from you. Um, However, I did want to talk about 80s um, execution. The story is fantastic. Really good story. But on, uh, on a personal note, I, I really like the rogue genre. Rogue lights, likes. I played a ton of them. And Hades was the first example rogue that... They actually built a story into. And what I mean by that is in most rogues, you just airs or you're. And Hades actually built a whole story into it where, you know, it's this constant loop where you're trying to escape. As you continue to play, you continue to build these these uh, um, relationships with different characters. I guess one of the reasons that, that Hades kind of jumped to mind for me. Uh, is because about half my time playing Hades, I was I was playing on um, on heat mode where you have to add you know optional challenges. Um, basically, to platinum the game, that was a requirement. 
And the easiest one to do was the time requirements. The feeling I get from the heat mode is very similar to what I experienced when I put neon white. It's just like, go, go, go. You're not thinking. You're just instinctively moving and trying to blast through a, a level fast. Just the distinction between the two where Hades has this other end, as opposed to neon white, where we'll, we'll talk in length about my feelings on that next week. Um, I actually don't think it's as bad as that makes it sound, but it, it's just a letdown compared to what you're experiencing in game. And it, it almost pulls you out of the experience for me, who is not an enemy. Hades, I don't know if you guys, we all three played that together. If you guys will have any additional notes on that, but um, I, I just, I love what they did that for that genre. And uh, I hope going forward that you see more and more of that in, uh, in row games. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Well, one, I almost picked, Hades as well so like it's kind of good to know I've been dodging some bullets as far as like what games I've been picking but you know the funny thing is I was so focused on favorite narrative moments that you know I totally overlooked like the whole aspect that you know that that mechanic you know was so tied into the storyline it opens and it's quintessential for you to understand the whole story about Zagreus and the relationship he has with Hades. So, yeah, good pick. I would have been like, my favorite narrative moment is when he, he beats him for the first time, you know, or some shit like that. So. <laughs> well, you know, we did two pods recently. Um, one, gameplay mechanics, and then last pod, we did quality of life mechanics. And so, I guess going into this narrative thing, I I kind of had this whole mindset of, of different mechanics, whether it's gameplay or narrative in this, in this matter that, that makes a game good. Um, and, and so I guess that was my approach. Um, so I'm saving the creme de la creme for me. I kind of just picked out four moments. Um, I wasn't sure if there was anything like some sort of excellent number amount of moments we're supposed to pick out. But um, for me, Disco Elysium. Uh, top 10 game of all time by IGN. Just wanted to let Jack know that it's that good. <laughs> and he'll never understand why because he won't play through it, which is fine. I can respect that. It's just not his type of game. But the Tribunal, which is uh, like where you confront a group of mercenaries that have been sent to, um, you know, pretty much wreck havoc and they're. They're like the super troopers, you know, everyone should be pretty scared of them. Everyone's walking around with like a six shooter pistol. You know, these guys have full automatic, uh, they're armored to the gear and there's multiple ways that you can affect the outplay of this tribunal. And, you know, there's, there's a few things that are always going to happen, but how they happen and what kind of. You know, this game's about die rolls, so it's about percentages. So depending on what you invest in throughout the game can determine, like, how well this scenario comes out for you. You know, one example is, you know, and having got, you know, like the platinum on it, I had to play through all these different scenarios. And, you know, one of the, the first one I played through was all intelligence. So it ended up being me 
buying enough time for my partner to get a lined up shot on the sniper of the mercenary group, which allows for um, a better outcome than what would happen if, like, for example, uh, if you weren't that intelligent, and more emotional, you could also try to distract them. But the thing is, uh, if you also go physical, you know, you can actually shoot your gun really well, as opposed to when you're intellectual, intellectual or emotional, you, you, your ability to hit the target is depreciated quite a bit. And the only way it's kind of propped up is how much you've invested into like how smart you are or how much you could get him to like kind of emotionally like get distracted enough. And, um, you know, one of my favorite parts is I was like, I want all physical role you know, build on this. So like my, I, you know, my um, hand-eye coordination was really good. I could shoot the gun really well, you know, and that, that had an effect that I hadn't seen yet. Like, you know, and it wasn't until about my third playthrough when I got to experience that ending where, you know, you shoot him in the eye and then he shoots and he misses you, you know, or he misses a critical character. And that that's how you get one of the platinums is because this, uh, side character lives whereas if you play intellectual or emotional you kind of distract them but you save yourself from getting hit as bad uh but my favorite one is uh to pop the platinum you have to there's a there's an item and in this game jack some some items of clothes have like different effects but if you couple it with a, a skill tree called Inland Emp Empire, I believe is what it is, which allows you to have really good imagination. And you come across this horrific necktie and it's, and it's introduced at the very beginning of the game when you come out of your like coma-like drunk-induced sl uh, slumber is- I do remember not, that. Yeah, if you're not physically- <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, If you're not physically strong enough and you reach for that tie, it will kill you. And then the game, you know, the game's over, so- uh, in this game, I get the tie, you know, this this whole version of this game is built on this one moment where you got this horrific necktie that's been talking to you and it talks shit, you know, like one of its lines is like, oh, you don't want to do that. That's responsibility. And we hate responsibility, you know, so it's got quite the sense of humor, but you're in this tribunal and you're not sure what to do. And the horrific necktie tells you to douse it or to put it in a bottle of uh, vodka to make a, uh, what is it, Molotov cocktail. And the whole time he's like, light me up. This is this is my Valkyrie song. You know, like, this is what I'm going to do to save your life, Harry. You need to light me up and you need to throw this at this son of a bitch. And it sounds way, I'm, I'm, I can't even give it the kind of credit that the actual script and voice work done on this does. Um, but yeah, it's pretty hilarious that like, throughout all these different ways that you could approach the tribunal, like this horrific necktie, you know, you throw it at the bad guy, catches him on fire, you know, he misses. Um, and if you fail that role, you know, there's an ending where your partner dies, Kim, you know, which is huge for the game because he's like considered probably the most, one of the top characters that you could have as sidekick um, in all the gaming. And he did guys and then you pick up kuno that just really mouthy son of a bitch kid and he ends up becoming a detective so i felt like this this on the the narrative like my favorite narrative moments like the fact that this thing this ending is so based on all these past decisions that you made 
with your character interacting with different aspects of the game can lead to such kind of I don't want to say dramatically different, but fairly ever shoot a gun in this game. And um, yeah, I thought that was just a huge moment in you know my my history of playing video games. This is one of those moments where it's like, this is why I love video games because it's kind of like pick your choose adventure, you know, and this really highlights that and magnifies it and projects it on a screen, and it's done gorgeously and it's done with the sense of humor. Or it's done with a sense of dread because you know, like you're not gonna be able to help out your partner and that kind of stuff. So I, I'm smiling because uh, "Choose Your Own Adventure" is exactly the books that I was thinking about as you're describing Disco Elysium. Um, this is something I've always struggled to do: is like step in to embody these characters as you play through games. Um, and I think mm, historically. It's been you've you've really had to use your imagination, Dave. You've always had a, just a, a, been great at kind of getting into these characters with these games where you can choose the light side or the dark side. But I feel like in a lot of ways, Disco and from what I hear about Boulder's Gate Three, this potential like evolution of this genre where it's really branching out and how many different choices you can make, how many different stories you can create and make them. And um, I don't know. I think it's really cool. I don't know if I'll, it's ever something that I'll really kind of jump into. But for players like Dave, I think it's just an amazing like potential. Jack, I would love to... If you're going to play Disco, give it another shot, if you were to, which is I would set you up with a character that was, like, super, like, athletic, not too bright, and an alcoholic. Like, a pension for an alcoholic. <laughs> and you might have a really good time <laughs> with this game. <laughs> you know, because, like, um, you know, that's... You know, like, I don't know what your thoughts were when you play this game, but, you know, because I play these games so differently and I enjoy them and you don't, but like, um, this game becomes really humorous when you're like an ego superstar cop, you know, so all the interactions change, the way people approach you, the way you approach other people, you know, and like I was saying, I think that's, even though you can't really, like, that's not you, you're not an alcoholic superstar cop with the huge ego. Um, yes, I, I was going to say he's my... not athletic, but and call you out on your combat in Final Fantasy <laughs> 16 <laughs> belligerently. <laughs> um, I feel like that that would be like a character that you might enjoy. Um, but unfortunately, there's just way too much dialogue in between all that cool shit for you to really like have it stick to your ribs. Well, but, I mean, on the on the uh, contrary, I, I played the game not as ambitious, but very similar in terms of you know where dialogue popping up, citizen like I was, and probably because it wasn't as ambitious, I was able to get into it and um, had a really good really good experience earlier this year. Yeah, uh, Disco, I, I don't think that that's going to be one that I could ever get through and play 
to the and experience to the level you did, Dave. But I really appreciate you kind of enlightening me on all the different paths I missed out on because uh, I very much enjoyed my one run through with it, and I know for a fact that there was a lot of meat that I left on that bone. So, um, but. I'm glad you picked The Witcher 3 as your game for us to all play this year, as opposed to making me have to go through Disco multiple times, though, because I, I definitely got my fill with that um, character that I created. Um, and you raise an interesting point, Jack. Like, there is something to be said. Like, when I was younger, I definitely used to love games where you can kind of create your own character and, like, impart kind of personality into them. And I think I've kind of fallen off on that largely because of the playing so many of the soul series where like your character has just almost no personality whatsoever. Like there no, almost no motivation other than just go through and kill everything in front of it. So, um, but um, that being said, I, I am still a sucker for a really um, strong protagonist. Um, most usually it's a male um, and one, I'd be remiss not to mention uh, solid snake uh, countless narrative moments throughout all of them. I mean, it's a Kojima game, but first one that comes to mind kind of with the mechanics is obviously Psycho Mantis, which I don't know uh, for our younger listeners out there if they recall, but on the original PlayStation, Psycho Mantis was a boss that his whole powers were that he was a psychic. And so what he would do is when you're having the dialogue session before the boss fight, he would demonstrate his psychic powers by vibrating the controller which really all it would do is activate the dual shock. But at the time when you're a little kid playing, it was like the coolest thing ever. Cause you know, this character in the game is breaking <laughs> the fourth wall of saying like, put the controller on the ground and I'll make it roll across the floor. And then actually the way you defeat psycho mantis, you actually have to uh, famously unplug the controller from port one and put it into port two to actually bypass his psychic abilities. Oh, because Otherwise, he's reading your mind when you're in port one. So he, he tell it, he can figure out every maneuver you make. So if you actually unplug it, put it in port two, then you can just kill him pretty easily. So that was one of the coolest ones. But, you know, my favorite personal moment and the payoff to this, I, I will say major spoiler, but it totally sucked. But there's an amazing sequence in Metal Gear Solid four where Snake has to go through, um, essentially a large tunnel that's a microwave uh to disable this nuclear reactor like and throughout the major theme of this game is he's dying already he's his aging in advanced rate because of all these different um you know different uh whatever they pumped him full of super soldier serum you know but it makes him age at a quicker rate he's kind of given up on the world and he's just like this is his like final sacrifice but it just plays up so perfectly where it's just him marching through this microwave tunnel where it's just him slowly being exposed to all this radiation knowing he's not going to make it through and as he's going through, like all these characters he's encountered are kind of like fighting to protect him on the top. And he hears all these dialogue sequences from the older games. Like it, it was a really great experience. And then it just sucks the moment you get out of it. But leading up to it, it was like, oh man, if you're going to kill off this iconic character, this is the way to do it. And they just couldn't do it because the quest for money is just too, too grand out there. But, uh, 
But leading up to that, I thought that was going to be his big for uh, and um, you know it, it was an amazing sequence. I will say that. Sorry, uh, I, I lost the last few sentences of that, Matt. So I was a little mixed up. Um, yeah, I think I've given my best examples of you know what I've been talking about today. Um, I guess I just give a shout out to uh, Catlot. I'm not claiming it is. Probably, especially by today's standards, incredibly cringe and uh, not PC. Uh, but sitting on my couch with uh, a couple other uh, yokel uh, dudes in their in their early mid twenties, uh, making decisions about love and, <laughs> and which which partner I wanted to choose. Um, Definitely contributed to Catherine being my favorite puzzle game of all time as uh, as kind of like ashamed as I would probably be if anybody who I knew actually went in and played that game. Uh, that, that game is, I think, fantastic because I find that puzzle part to be, it interacts with the story so well, you know, because some of those boss fights are pretty obnoxious. We've talked about them before, but also the the puzzle part itself is a lot of fun, you know, and you're on this times, you know, thing, this floor is going to fall out from underneath you. And, you know, just like much like a relationship, if you don't act quick enough, you know, that can disappear <laughs> to you. So, well said. Um, yeah. But um, I, I felt like, yeah, I gave my, my last example. I kind of started off with the most obvious BS. And then I think I actually worked myself up to some two pretty good examples. I, I feel like there's so many of these that I had to choose from. It actually, it actually chained me up for like the last couple hours. You know, Jack mentioned Hades and I thought about that. You mentioned Final Fantasy three. You mentioned, you know, Red Dead Redemption two. And those were all like, those were three games where I was up on here, like researching moments, you know, seeing if I can't jog my memory about stuff. So, you know, and then Jack, you know, I'm glad you shot out something, you know, that you're like, okay, I'm I'm not exactly dropping my favorite narrative moments, but I'm dropping the narrative moments where, like, the mechanic, the heart of the game is really involved into it, you know? And so I was really happy to have been like, okay, like, Inscription and, you know, Disco Elysium are very strong in those two. So, yeah, you know, great it's example. not just cinematics, it's also gameplay. It's also how... Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to watch it necessarily. You can interact with this moment and it can make a difference. Yeah. I was going to say, I'll leave off with uh, one that makes my honorable mention uh, just because it had no place being involved in a game of this nature, but braid um, the, the big reveal at the end, uh, basically discovering that you're the bad bad guy at the end, but also, the added commentary of kind of like the classic Mario brothers of chasing after the princess and basically just the concept of like, no, he's not this, you know, nice guy who's there to like rescue a princess trapped in castle. He's actually just psychotic and, and obsessed with her. And so um for a game that like had so many amazing physics and, and offered so many unique gameplay elements for its time um it, really had no business adding this this whole plot twist at the end as well but that really kind of knocked me on my ass for sure and uh definitely 
even though I my experience with the game wasn't as great at the time, I, I fully admit that's because I play it way, way too late um, after the fact. But I still have a lot of respect for it. And certainly that twist was a big part of it. Yeah, I, I really like, well, basically the way that Braid borrows the Mario aesthetic for the physical part of the game. But they add all these twists that are that that just make it so much more interesting. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad way of saying it. But but they they mutated into a puzzle game using these really brilliant mechanics. And the way that they make you wait till the very end, they actually transformed the story itself to twist on the whole idea of Mario going to another castle. Another castle, another castle. Nope, Mario's not the hero. Um, I, I just think um, the way they they built on the history of video games to kind of make that twist turn just a little bit deeper, uh, I thought was really smart. No, it, it was incredible, um, and I do have to put that out there just so I can prove that a Jack puzzle slash um, physics game. Can also have an amazing plot because certainly as we will get to in our next episode, we will talk about a game that has a god awful plot, but all the other elements <laughs> that Jack enjoys. Uh gentlemen, any final thoughts on favorite narrative moments in game? <laughs> Many of my favorite narratives are puzzle games. Well, I shoot, you call out puzzle games. I'm I'm gonna bring up Talus Principle. I'm not even gonna talk about it. I'm just gonna say I'm just gonna say no. You were wrong. Amazing narratives. Um, I've got to. Uh, I've got to aggregate myself. I meant to do this earlier in the pod, but um, I, uh, I, already, I already filled in Dave on what's about to go down. But as the aggregator, it is my responsibility to uh, to note that on our last pod, I called out Plummer uh, regarding a uh, actual amazing idea he had regarding uh, basically taking the. The idea of when you're on a horse, I believe it is in The Witcher 3, and you can you can just make it run along the roads you want it to to get to the location. He, he brought that up as a possible improvement on GTA, to which I poo-pooed and said, no, 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 they already did that. They did not do that. That's my bad. Sorry, Plum. Uh, I was thinking of the taxi mode and uh, where you can jump in a taxi and you visually see. Basically, it's the same mechanic. It's just you can't do it when you're driving. Anyway, um, Matt, Dave. Sorry, let you t- I let you guys down. I'm not going to apologize for my shitty internet connection. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no need for you to apologize for uh, messing up one minor mechanic in a game that's over 15 years old. So, <laughs> Well, the, the, the whole reason I got to do it is because I actually, you know, I, I shat on Dave's idea. So, well, you know, if I just screw things up, I don't care. But, you know. Taking taking Dave's thunder away, I had a I had a uh, yeah. No 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 harm no foul, brother. I didn't take it personally. All right, right on. Well, with that touching moment, this has been Couch Co-op, a video game podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Ciao.